God, we thank you for your holy word. People have laid down their lives to, to bring your word to us. And I pray that you'll help us to focus this morning. I know there's a real blessing in your word if we dig in there as, as though we're searching for gold. And we will find many precious gems which will draw us closer to you. And that's what we want, Lord, in these devotions. We want to not just gather information and knowledge, Lord, but we want to have uh, a deeper experience with you. So may your word come alive this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. What I'd like to do this morning and for the next few mornings is take you through parts of the book of Romans. So how many of you have heard of Romans? Just checking. And maybe some people here that have never cracked open a Bible. Uh, so most of you put your hands up. So that, that means most of you can give me the answers to my questions now. Uh, what is the book of Romans about? Salvation. Uh, an address from a pastor to a church. Always remember Paul is a pastor before he's a theologian, yes. His message to church members who were living in Rome. What else do we know about Romans? Yes. Anything else? Okay, so we're going to spend most of our time in uh, Romans 8, because that's one of the gems in, in the whole of Scripture. And of course, the book of Romans is, book of Romans has um, been responsible through the Holy Spirit using the book of Romans to bring about revival and reformation, which many of you are studying about for, for this quarter. So we, we're going to be challenged to cover all of the books, so we're not going to be able to do that. I will take you into the first chapter this morning, and if, we, if, we're, if we're fortunate, we might just barely get to Romans chapter 8 today, but probably we're going to have to wait uh, till tomorrow for that. Um, so we go to the, the Bible. I'm kind of hesitant to stand up here. If, if I go down to your level, that's probably what I'll, I'll be doing. But I'll start up here. So Romans 1.1, 1, 1, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. The gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. So tell me, there's a lot of key words that come up in Romans that we need to pause and, and ask ourselves, what do we mean by this word? So tell me what you understand by the word gospel. Okay, Jesus Christ coming to save us. That's good. You can give many answers to this, this question. Good news about who? Jesus Christ. Yes, good news. Salvation. Okay, so does... What you understand about the gospel and what you understand about Jesus, is it good news to you? Because everything that we're doing here, I want to be practical for you. And there are going to be things that we're going to say. There are going to be words and phrases that you're not necessarily going to understand. So feel free to ask any question. And there's no question that's silly. If it's important to you, then I want, I want to, to know about it. So good news about Jesus Christ. So I would be... A, just a little bit more specific, especially his, his life, of course. His death on the cross is really, really big in the book, the book of Romans and his resurrection from the dead. So sometimes it's a bit tricky to know what to bring into that phrase, good news. But it's definitely about Jesus Christ and it's about him coming to save the human race. Okay, so the next few verses actually... Tell us something about that, which kind of brings up a principle that I want you to kind of have at the back burner. Scripture interprets itself. Uh, sometimes we, it needs some work for us to, to make Scripture interpret itself. But here's an example. I've asked you a question. Tell me what gospel is. And, and if we can't start reading the next few verses, then we see an explanation of what the gospel is. Regarding his son... That's Jesus Christ, 
who as to his human nature was a descendant of David, and who through the spirit of holiness was declared with power to be the Son of God. So there we have his humanity and his divinity just covered in a few verses in in the person of Jesus Christ. Um, By his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through him and for his name's sake, we received grace and apostleship to call people from among all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith. Now that's a very interesting phrase. We won't spend much time on it. Maybe a little bit of time when we get to Romans 8. But the obedience of faith, often we talk of faith as though, it's, as though it is faith in faith. And if you know anything about um, Benny Hinn and, and the charismatic and the Pentecostal movement, you know that they have very uh, unusual understandings, non-biblical understandings of what faith is. And when they have their healing sessions and so on, you have to pay attention and, and try and figure out, well, what do they understand faith is, and what do we as Seventh-day Adventists understand what faith is, and what does the Bible actually say about faith? So it's not faith in faith, it's not faith in in a particular understanding of righteousness or justification, it's faith in Jesus, it's faith in God, it's faith in the promises that God has given to us, and somehow, someway, in some mysterious, supernatural way, that faith which is like a key to unlock the treasure house of God. You heard that phrase before. Somehow that leads us into a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. So faith, in a sense, is, is, is a means. And as we get into that relationship with Jesus Christ, and we'll, we'll study that, that will be a big part of what we study the next few days, we will see that faith, genuine in faith, saving faith, I mean, how do you know if someone's got faith? Well, our text says it leads to obedience. So it called the phrase, this is, I'm using the NIV this morning. It really doesn't matter what translation you have. Most of them are pretty similar. The obedience of faith, genuine saving faith should always lead to obedience. So if we take a phrase like, if you love me, Jesus says, you will do what? All right, so, that, so faith isn't mentioned there, but a re, the relationship is, is mentioned in the, concept, in the terms of love. That will always lead to obedience to God's commandments. So that's like an acid test of whether someone has genuine faith or not. Is there any change in their life? And there should be if it's saving faith. Now that doesn't mean to say that they can't sin big time like Peter did when he denied his Lord. It uh, doesn't mean to say that they can't backslide, but it does mean that we should be seeing changes for, for the better. A person, and the obedience of faith, we'll, we'll find when we go to Romans 8, is, is to bring us into conformity to the Lord Jesus Christ. So the goal of this salvation is not just to get you and I through the pearly gates, as important as that is. But it's to develop a character for us to be conformed to the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's a phrase that is used in Romans 8, and we'll get to that uh, at a later time. So just kind of easy to jump over a little phrase like obedience of faith, but I wanted to just explain that. Now go to verse 16, because verses 16 and 17, in a sense, are Paul's thesis. His main point. Now, if you wrote a letter to me, and I've just had quite a few letters written to me, or at least cards saying farewell, pastor. So if you write a letter to me, I want to see in the first verse or the second, first sentence or the second sentence, uh, why you're writing this letter to me. Right? So, the main point, I believe, which runs all the way through the book, is in verses 16 and 17. Uh, does anybody want to read that, verse 16 and 17? Let's try and get you involved this morning. Romans 1, 16 and 17, loud voice.
Okay, thank you. What translation is that? The New Living. Okay, that's that's fairly fairly new translation. Okay, good. So, 16 and 17, if you're into marking your Bible, those are very, very important verses uh, for the book of, of Romans. So, let's say this is his main thesis, this is his main point. This this theme here is going to run through the whole book. So, why should he, he be ashamed of the gospel? Why should anybody be ashamed of the gospel? Well, people called it foolishness. People that died on crosses were not looked on as heroes. Um, Paul was a, a well-educated man. He sat at the feet of Gamaliel, one of the greatest Jewish teachers, rabbis of all time. Um, and when people start to, to mock you because of your belief system, because of your faith in a crucified Messiah, then there is a possibility of being ashamed. But Paul had learned something. He had learned that this gospel, this good news of Jesus Christ, is not just a fancy phrase, or it's not just words on paper that we would read from the Bible. It's the power of God. Now, one of the choruses we sang this morning had the word power in there. Have you experienced the power of God? You have. One, one person here has. Anyone else? I have. And I'll probably be telling you a little bit about that and weaving that in to our message in Romans. I have. What we're going to see here, that this, this gospel, this good news of Jesus Christ, is tremendously powerful and that it delivers us from something. Now, it delivers us from, from many things. But we're going to look at just one thing in the next verse that it delivers us from. And this is why these verses, 16 and 17, are so powerful. Because verse 18 says, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Now, a long section is being started here from verse 18 on almost to the end of chapter 3 to explain what godlessness and wickedness meant for the Gentile. What does Gentile mean? Non-Jewish world, which was the majority of the population on planet Earth in the first century. And also what it would mean for the Jewish community too. And he will end up somewhere in chapter 3, I forget which verse it is, uh, saying we've all sinned, we all fall short of the glory of God. And the glory of God, by the way, is, is like the final, the final end product. So when we're talking about salvation, we're talking about a, kind of like a process. So it has a beginning, it has a middle, and it has an end. And the end is to enter into the glory of God. Pardon? The, the essence of the glory of God is the character of God. And that comes through really clearly in the book of Exodus. We won't necessarily look at that. But if you take some, I see some of you are taking notes. I think it's around Exodus 33, 34. And Moses says, show me your what? Show me your glory. So that's a, when I preached on that some years ago, I, I uh, kind of learned a, new, a, f- a few things. Because I was always saying to God, well, what is your glory? What's this glory thing? Where do I find glory on earth? How am I supposed to understand that? And I began to understand from preaching on that passage that it's the character of God. Because the next few verses after Moses asked that, says the Lord, gracious and merciful. And then I started to figure out this is really the, the most attractive component of God is his character. And, and sometimes we summarize that in the word glory. So the wrath of God. My question is this. Do you know anything of the wrath of God? Do you know what it is to be lost? Do you know what it is to be a sinner? We, we have to be careful on this because there are 
Christian people who can honestly say they really mean it, though it's not very biblical what they say, but they really mean it. They say, well, pastor, I've, I've, never, I've never even thought of killing someone. But if you think of those of you that are goody-two-shoes here, if you think of all the times when you've not given God the glory, all the times when you've whined and complained and not claimed the promises of God, even those of us who are sincere in our walk with God uh, realize that many, many, many times we fall short and continue to fall short of the glory of God. So that's the problem. That's the issue. And we should never talk about salvation outside of establishing the point of the wrath of God and what, how bad sin is. If we don't spend time on that, then we're never going to really appreciate what Jesus did for us. So if we just talk about the love of God without bringing in the aspect of the wrath of God and the penalty for sin, then it's never really going to have the impact. If you read about, uh, I don't know if any of you have ever read Puritan literature. You can get most of this on the internet now for free. Puritan literature, they were very um, strong on um, the character of God, the, the glory of God. And even if we think of the Reformation, think of someone like Luther or Calvin and some of the great preachers in, um, in Ellen White's day in the 19th century, the 18th, 19th century. Um, all of these great people, great preachers, did what we call the law work. Have you ever heard that phrase? The law work. In other words, they tried to, maybe the first half of their sermon, and they probably preached long sermons in those days, but would be on how we need this relationship with God. So why we fall short and how we fall short and how God's wrath is against sin and we can't cling to sin. And they would spend a lot of time on that. They would talk about the importance of the law of God. So today, if you, when you and I are witnessing and we want to convict someone of sin, of course the Holy Spirit is the one that does that, but He can use us to do that, then we might walk people through the Ten Commandments. I, I've done that a number of times, and, and sometimes they really do think that they've kept them all. So then I go to the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus really breaks down the law of God uh, in a very detailed way. And then I'll go to, well, have you loved God with all your heart and with all of your soul, and loved your neighbor as yourself 24-7? By the time we're through, they know that they need something. Can you see the importance of that? It's not going to work just to talk about Jesus. Because Jesus is put in many, many categories. He's, there's, there's a book out now that's been on some of the radio programs in, in the media on, on Jesus being uh, a Jewish, uh, what, what do they call him? I forget exactly what they called him now. But uh, putting, putting Jesus into certain categories. He's, he's a good man. Um, he's a rabbi. He's a Jewish rabbi. The category we want to put him in and we want to bring to people's attention is he is a savior from sin. That's the key. God is interested in saving the whole human race. That's what it's about. So yes, there's many good things that we can talk about Jesus, but we don't want people to follow Jesus because he's a good man. Not just for that reason. Because you can follow Jesus because he's this, this humanist that believe in the Sermon on the Mount. This humanist that have probably got it all memorized and think that they keep it. But they have no time for the blood of Christ. They have no time for a, a Savior dying on the cross. So this wrath of God is really, really big, and he spends the rest of chapter 1, chapter 2, and most of chapter 3 discussing the implications of that. For the sake of time, we're not going to be able to, to go into that. But we, got, we are going to pick it up where there's good news. So let's go to, the, to, to verse, um, verse 19 of chapter 3. 
For we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law. So everybody under the wrath of God is under what? Yeah, the demands of the law of God. And the, what are the demands of the law of God? Accountability, yes. What kind of accountability? What does the law demand from us? Obedience. What kind of obedience? Perfect obedience. How often perfect? Constantly perfect obedience. Never a wrong thought, never mind word or action. Or inclination. So the demands of the law are very, very deep. And somebody like Paul, sitting at the feet of Gamaliel, every day would learn a lot about the law of God, right? The Jews prided themselves on on knowledge of the law of God. And, And I suppose, in a sense, they did know very well the letter of the law. What they didn't know very well was the spirit of the law. And when Paul finally understood, and I'm not sure exactly when this was in his experience, But he says, when he understood, I think this is in Romans 7, that the law said, thou shalt not covet. Then he understood that law keeping is more than just doing something. It is desiring something in your heart too. Because isn't that what the commandment, thou shalt not covet, is suggesting to us? That you're desiring something that really doesn't belong to you. You have no part of that. So that's something that goes on in the heart. And Paul says, when I realized that, then the law slayed him. Because then, probably for the first time in his life, he knew that he had broken the law of God many, many times. Verse 20, Therefore no one will be declared righteous. We need to define that. What's righteous? Righteous. That was a phrase that really bothered the reformer Martin Luther. Do you remember he was a very strong Catholic priest, very dedicated Catholic priest, tried all sorts of things to get himself right with God, whipping himself, fasting. In fact, he, he damaged his health for the rest of his life because of the way that he mortified uh, his body. But when he would see that phrase, the righteousness of God, it was, it was a real negative to him. Because he knew in his heart he wasn't righteous. Hence all of this punishment of the body. But when he discovered the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, then his whole understanding about righteousness and the righteousness by faith changed in, in a moment. And, and really... Was, was responsible for the whole Protestant Reformation. Certainly had a lot, a lot to do with it. So righteousness by faith means being right with God. And, of course, the question is, how, do, how does that happen? And, and Romans explains that very, very well, how that happens. So therefore, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. But now, here's the good news, but now a righteousness from God, apart from law, has been made known to which the law and the prophets, that's the Old Testament, testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. So something is coming from God to those who, here the word is belief. A little bit earlier we had the word faith. Many of these words are interchangeable. Maybe not exactly the same meaning, but very similar meanings. So, comes through faith in Christ to all who believe there is no difference. All of sin falls short of the glory of God and are justified. So there's another word that we need to deal with. Freely, by His grace, through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. So when Jesus Christ died on the cross and rose from the dead, somehow he justified or made righteous, if I can use that phrase, I can't, if I say rightified, that doesn't quite sound right, does it? Rightified, like we say justified. But they're interchangeable terms. Justify and righteousness are very, very similar concepts. So, 
Jesus made the human race right with God by his sacrifice on the cross. So don't get um, too confused or disturbed by some of these words. And It's the concept I want you to get. That we are outside of a right relationship. We're under the wrath of God. We're sinners heading for hell until Jesus comes and does something for us. Atonement, which means that all the demands of the law of God, which we just talked about a moment ago, the law to be kept perfectly in thought, word, deed, and whatever else is there, Jesus did. He met all the demands of God's law in his heart and in his actions. Do you remember he said at one time, no one can convince me of sin? Or words to that effect. So he was the perfect law keeper. And that's what what was demanded from the human race. Adam failed. So that's Genesis, Genesis 3. Which, by the way, Paul certainly believes in and uses in his arguments that he's building in the book of Romans to show uh, how, how we are made right with God. So the promise was made to Adam and Eve in the garden after they had sinned. Do you remember God made the promise in Genesis 3.15? And we call that the proto-evangelium. What does proto mean? The word proto. Hmm? No. First. Evangelium. Good news. Exactly, that's good news. So in the Greek, when we see good news, it will have that word evangelion. So the first good news was made in the Garden of Eden to Adam and Eve about the serpent. Do you remember that? So, that, so, so that's in the background to what Paul is saying here on righteousness by faith. So let's, let's try and summarize where we are up to now. So the whole human race is outside of a right relationship with God until Jesus pays the penalty on the cross. For your sins and for my sins. When a person embraces Jesus, if I can use that phrase, then all the law-keeping of Jesus, all the perfection of Jesus, is put to your account. Now, why do I say it in, in, in that way? Put to your account. I could say something like, is... Uh, the Holy Spirit brings it into your heart. There's, there's different ways of saying it, but I, I say it put to your account on purpose because in our bank account, let's be bankers for a moment. Don't you love bankers? I tell you, they're not on the top of the list for the most loved professions. But let's say your banker looks into your account. And he's smiling before he looks. But when he looks, he's no longer smiling. Because he sees not just a a big zero there. He sees a deficit. It is not good news. Right? And maybe some of you have been in that situation. We don't want any true confessions at this point. But then some generous benefactor comes along and puts a million dollars into your account. And for some reason, when the banker goes home and he's smiling from ear to ear, his wife says, hey, you've had a good day. And he says, yes. Because Mary Jones went from zero to what? Million dollars. So what is Mary Jones' status when she has a million dollars? What would we call her? A millionaire. A very rich person, a millionaire. Well, maybe millions not a big deal nowadays. It is to Cecil and I, but not, not to you guys, but to most people. But So the status of that person is millionaire. So what is your status when you believe and have faith in Jesus? Hmm? Your status is a very rich, righteous person. 
God sees in your account something you have not put in there, never could, never would, never be able to. Why? Because you have a sinful nature. Right? And because you have that sinful nature, this is going to be developed later in Romans, because you have that sinful nature, it is impossible for any sinful human being, which is the whole human race, to keep God's law perfectly unless God does something. God has to act. God has to do something. So first we're talking about He does something on the cross of Calvary and God declares you righteous. So righteousness by faith, justification by faith is is saying that you're righteous with God. And it's kind of like the bank the banker saying to this woman when she comes to with her head down like this, she comes in and to talk about her account and she sees the banker just smiling and she can't understand why and he says but look at what's in your account now and she thinks there's been some mathematical error because it says a million dollars so before she faints and they carry her off to hospital he explains to her what's going on that some rich benefactor has come and put that million dollars into her account. Now, she may not mentally be able to comprehend that for a while. You remember when uh, slavery came, when emancipation came to, for the slaves here in, in, in America? There were many slaves that, even though the law said, the law of the land said you're free, mentally they couldn't grasp it. And many of them, may, maybe for 10, 20, 30 years still worked as slaves even though they had been emancipated. Often it's like that with the gospel. Very Many, many Christians cannot grasp the richness of what God has really done for them. And that's going to be uh, bring up an issue that's going to come through every day when we talk about Romans. Uh, is it possible for us as Seventh-day Adventists to have complete assurance, complete confidence that God has covered all the bases. That God is always for us, never against us. Now, while we're under the wrath of God, God is against us in that sense because He's against sin, right? And we're sinners. But when we're delivered from that, and that's part of what salvation is. Deliverance from sin, death, guilt, all the negative stuff that goes with sin. And we're right with God. Then God treats us as He would treat His Son. Right? There's a text in John 17. I think it's verse 23. I'm just doing this from memory. I'm not sure, but... Essentially, it's the high priestly prayer of Jesus, as you know, John 17. And he, he, says, he says, Father, may they realize that, that you love them as you love your son. So righteousness by faith, there's lots and lots of ways we can explain it, but it's God making you totally right with himself. And God treating you from that point on as he would treat his son. That's why it's good news. So if I ask the question, why is it good news? You could give different answers to that, but a good answer would be, because he treats me and loves me as he loves his son, Jesus Christ. Okay, so I believe all of that and much more is wrapped up in some of these words that we were reading here in Romans 3. Um, verse 24, are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Him as a sacrifice of atonement. So, one of you mentioned the word atonement a moment ago. At one month, right with God, through faith in His blood. He did this to demonstrate His justice because in His forbearance, okay. Alright, so that's enough on that. Those verses are key there. So now, 
we're going to try and make the bridge to Romans chapter 8. So I'm going to do some, take some long strides with my short legs here at this point in time. So we've established the point that Paul is about proclaiming this gospel. God has set him apart. When did God set Paul apart? On the Damascus Road? Anyone else? Before he was born. Anyone else? Before the foundation of this world. Right? And we will see that in Romans 8 when we get, get into concepts like foreknowledge, predestination, what, what is calling, and so on. He does say, when he separated me from my mother's womb. So that's, that's an interesting, that's a sermon in itself. When was, when was Paul re- really called? Um, so we're going to go from him proclaiming this gospel, telling us what the gospel is, realizing that this gospel is powerful enough to deliver us from the wrath of God and from the whole concept of sin, death, devil, everything that's negative there. He delivers us from, from all of that and he brings us into the kingdom of his son. Romans chapter 4 is about who? Abraham and a little bit of David in there too. So, this, so chapter 4 is explaining more fully. So if, if someone comes to me and says, Pastor, well, I heard what you said about righteousness and justification, but still don't quite grasp it. I remember the illustration about the banker. Um, I'd, I'd say, well, go read Romans 4 and then come back. So that's a very clear explanation of what justification or righteousness by faith is and how Abraham uh, was and David were men that were made right with God through faith. That brings us to chapter 5. I want to spend a few minutes there. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, Whenever you see the word therefore, and you're going to come across it here in chapter 5, and in chapter 8, he's summarizing something. So if you didn't catch everything in the first four chapters, maybe you'll catch it in these early verses of chapter 5. Therefore, since we've been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you have that peace? Many Seventh-day Adventists do not. That's why I mentioned a moment ago about assurance of salvation. World presidents of the Seventh-day Adventist Church over time, people like Pearson and Falkenberg and and others have said this is one of the greatest issues in the Seventh-day Adventist Church. Many Seventh-day Adventists do not have confidence, do not have a sense of security in their relationship with God. We're going to see from Romans 8 that that, that that is a travesty, that we all should have that, and here it's in the word peace. Peace because all the barriers have been broken down between God and us through Jesus Christ. So peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also rejoice in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, character, hope. Hope does not disappoint us because God has poured out His love into our hearts. By whom? By the Holy Spirit. So I read these verses to get us to the Holy Spirit. Because when we go to chapter 8, we're going to see the Holy Spirit all over the chapter. But notice that in chapter 5, He's already being introduced. And He is the one that applies the benefits of Christ to us. So we really need to understand, obviously, as much as we can about the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ, but also the ministry of the Holy Spirit. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, that's while we're under the wrath of God, Christ died for the ungodly. Have you ever thought of yourself as ungodly? Do you know what it is to be lost, to be ungodly? I could spend the next hour, which isn't going to happen, but telling you about my ungodliness and and my life before I I came to the Lord Jesus Christ. I know what it is to be lost. It is as fresh to me as though it was yesterday. And I think that gives me a greater appreciation for the salvation 
that Jesus Christ brings to me. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man someone might possibly dare to die, but God demonstrates His own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Can you see Him repeating Himself over and over and over again? Getting this point into the heads of these church members in Rome that Christ died for sinners. Since we've now been justified by His blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through Him? If God has done the most difficult thing, which is to save the ungodly, that is the most profound problem in the universe. And God has done that. Is there any reason that He won't, that he won't finish the job? So those of us that worry about um, our character perfection and become almost obsessed with that have really not grasped the gospel. Justification by faith is like the foundation of all of these arguments that Paul is going to build. We've got to get that foundation strong and right and true. And then we can start building upon that. It's very interesting that when you look at most of the New Testament, or at least a good portion of the New Testament, which is written by Paul, the first, at least the first half, in Romans it's more than that. In Romans it's at least the first eight chapters. Some would say the first 11 chapters before he ever tells us what we should do, how we should live. So he is spending an enormous amount of time telling us who we are in Christ. Grasp that. Grasp that you're a child of the king, you're you're royalty. Grasp that. And the expectation is, you will behave accordingly. So this is not, when we get to chapter 12, which we won't do here, but when we start reading chapter 12, 13, 14, and so on, how we should live, how we should treat one another, it's all based upon this earlier material that has been trained to get the point to us who we are in Jesus Christ. That's the most important thing to get. I come from England, which has a royal family. It has taken Prince Charles a while to grasp the fact that he's royalty. And he has caused the queen no few gray hairs because of his behavior. But as he matures, as he grows then I think he's understanding more of people's expectations of royalty. It's the same in our relationship with God. If these great privileges have been given to us, which we're starting to read about here, then great responsibility is expected too, right? Verse 10, For if we were, when we were enemies, so we've looked at uh, ungodly sinners, now enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son. How much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? This phrase, how much more, is a key concept in Romans chapter 5. Now, as as he continues through through Romans 5, he makes a great contrast between Adam, those in Adam, and those in Christ. Have any of you ever studied those verses? Can you have a kind of a little bit of an idea of... And all of these ways of explaining salvation should give us confidence that God has done everything He needs to do to get us into His glory. I think I'll make my transition now to Romans chapter 8. And here's how I'm going to do it. At the end of chapter 5, Paul says this. The law was added so that the trespass might increase, but where sin increased, grace increased all the more, so that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Some people, when they heard grace, 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 much, much more, said, okay, we can sin however we want. And Paul in chapter 6 answers that objection. God forbid. You've missed the point. You've not really grasped it. The ones who really grasp what grace is 
are the ones who are on the road to holiness. So, the, so the way, our sanctification, our holiness, our character perfection is all wrapped up in understanding some of these uh, concepts that we're dealing with. So chapter 6, in a sense, is not part of the main argument. It's a detour. You ever notice your pastor goes on detours when he preaches? Sometimes the detours are so long, we forget to get back on the main road. But Paul is going on a detour in chapter 6 to deal with this this, uh, objection to grace, that we can sin as much as we want. He says, God forbid. Chapter 7, especially the Jews would say, but what about the role of the law? So Paul deals with the role of the law in chapter 7. And then in chapter 8, which is where we're going to conclude here and pick it up tomorrow, there is another therefore. Therefore. And that therefore links us up, I believe, not to chapter 7 so much or or chapter 6, but to the end or to the whole argument in Romans chapter 5. So it's one main argument here with some detours. And therefore, what has God done? You've missed the first seven chapters. You've not understand it. Many lose their way in chapter 7. You can catch it in Romans 8.1. Therefore, there is how much condemnation? No condemnation. Every day you need to preach this to yourself. And you need to say it loud. Don't worry if they bring the yellow van to take you away. Say it loud. Preach to yourself. There is therefore now no condemnation to those in Christ Jesus. So my question is, as we wrap up here, are you in Christ Jesus? So this is a similar, similar statement to saying, are you saved? But if I ask that question, you'd, certain things would come into your head. So let's ask it a different way. Are you in Christ Jesus? This is Paul's favorite phrase. His favorite concept. It's really developed in Romans 5. We haven't had much time to, to look at that. You can maybe go, go home and, to, and, and check that out. But in Christ Jesus, you're brought in, into the family of God. So the Jews had a really hard time with the Gentiles because of that. If we're talking about the family of God. We're talking about the Jewish family of God. And most of your New Testament is dealing with that issue. How do you get these Jews and the Gentiles to be one, united in Christ? One family. So in Christ Jesus is the phrases right there in in verse 1. No condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Never can be, never will be for those in Christ Jesus. That's the idea. That's the strength of the Greek language in which this was written never can be you're in the family of God now we said right at the beginning that God's goal God's purpose God's plan is to bring us into his glory for eternity right most of us understand something of that so while we're in Christ Jesus And we start to stray, we start to be stubborn, we don't want to cooperate with the Holy Spirit as He's conforming us into the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. Does God just abandon us? Does He just throw us out of the family? I've known Seventh-day Adventists to say, Pastor, I believe that if I sin, I'm outside of the family of God. That is not biblical. The devil will give you the runaround, big time, if you start thinking that way, you have to readjust your thinking to, to believe that when you're in God's family, if God needs to bring discipline, chastisement, whatever is needed to get you into glory, He's going to do it. And if you think of the whole Bible, what is the plan and the purpose of God in the whole Bible? Never mind the book of Romans. In the whole Bible, it is to bring, as we said in, from Genesis to bring us into a right relationship with himself, right? What do we see with the nation of Israel? Failure, 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 failure. And God always bringing out a remnant, a remnant, a remnant. So God's plans and God's purposes never fail. 
They never can fail because God is God. It doesn't matter what man does. God's plan, God's purposes will succeed. Now, when you embrace Jesus Christ, when, or better, when God embraces you through Jesus Christ, that's a better way of saying it, you better believe that God is serious in that relationship. And He's going to do everything He, he needs to do to bring you and I into glory. So sometimes what I say is you can do it the easy way or you can do it the hard way. But it will be done. Holiness and sanctification and character perfection is not an optional extra for the Christian. Those whom God justifies are those whom God will sanctify. We, o- we only separate these things so mentally we can grasp them. In the mind of God, they're one action. And they never should be separated. Distinguish, yes. Justification is not sanctification. Sanctification is not glorification. Right? But it's one package as far as God is concerned. So to take the name of Jesus Christ on your lips, to call yourself a Christian, is a very solemn thing. Glorious, yes. You're part of the royal family. You're a son and a daughter of God. You have full rights to enter into His glory. He's going to love you as He loved His Son, as He loves His Son. Now, you should be smiling now. Kind of hard to grasp, really, isn't it? It's overwhelming. But it is the gospel. It is the good news of Jesus Christ. So what we'll do tomorrow, we'll pick it up in Romans 8. And and I'll be doing a little bit of jumping in Romans 8 because we only have three sessions uh, after, after today. So we won't cover every verse, but we will cover some really important material that constantly is written in a specific way so that those church members in Rome will have the assurance and the confidence. Let's face it, folks. If the lions are roaring in the Colosseum and you're going to be torn away from your family to be eaten by the lions or alternatively to pour oil on you, pitch or whatever they use, and set you a light to light up the Colosseum, you had better know which side your bread is buttered on, right? You had better know whether you're in Christ or not. So the book of Romans is a very practical letter written by a pastor to bring assurance and confidence to church members in Rome who soon will suffer terrible persecution. Let's pray. Gracious God, we thank you for the good news of our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for being God, our Father, who sent Jesus to die for the human race. That must have been really hard for you, Father, to do that. We thank you and we praise you for that. And we know that he met all of your demands, all of the demands of a holy God, all the demands of a holy law. And that somehow, Lord, many of us in this, in this tent this morning have put our faith and our trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we love you and we love him. And I believe, Lord, all of this is possible through the work of the Holy Spirit. Thank you so much, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, for this great plan of salvation. Be with us in the next few days. Be with us in this camp meeting, through, through the children's meetings and the adults' meetings. And may your glory and your character be manifested. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless you. See you tomorrow morning.